All right, hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop. Alongside me, Shelby King. Shelby, what's going on today in the world of publishing? Well, looks like you were right. According to our ad index, we yeah. had a record-breaking Black, Black Friday. Friday. That's right, we did. I uh, was uh, refreshing my screen uh, all weekend over the uh, holidays because I was really interested in the American holiday. I was interested to see if we were going to hit that record and... Sure enough, not only do we we hit the record, but we it looks like it shattered. Um, and I say we, I mean collective we is in the industry. Um, it was pretty staggering to see the index at that you know that one hundred point, and then all other previous records fall into the eighties. It was low eighties even. Yeah, so you got to see just how dramatic uh, the ad rate increases have been in two thousand eighteen compared to uh, subsequent years. Let's see if your predictions for 2019 come true. I guess this is still 2018. Well, in the last episode, we had me thumbs up and thumbs down, and I was thumbs down on all the all the industry trends. But I do think that this is the best time to be a digital publisher for for that exact reason. And um, yeah, there's never been more good good tools at your disposal and things to things to do and um, and people and ways to reach people. I think that's one of the really amazing things about this time and. Uh, one of the reasons why you see ad rates going this high is because uh, advertisers are seeing that digitally it's easy to reach people and um, that's obviously something that they're interested in doing. Right. So today I wanted to start off this episode with a um, new study about editions versus news flows and which ones readers prefer. So this study claims that half of readers prefer to read their digital news in edition format versus news flow. So the Belgium Digital Publishing Company surveyed 4,000 people um, in six European countries and in the U.S. and found that this also holds true across countries and age groups. So what's the difference between edition and news flow? Well, Yeah, that was my question. <laughs> <laughs> an edition is a bundled package of content with a clear beginning and end, while a news flow is just continuously like updating um, stream of information. Um, so research shows that the editions and new flow, news flow correspond to fundamentally different reader behaviors and needs. Um, they also found that the edition readers look less for free content or, and are more loyal to one news brand because they generally have less time on their hands. So that kind of plays into something we talked about in the past with the mode of your user, your reader, yeah. and what their intent is. Um, they also said that 30% of people are also willing to pay for their format of choice. So which one do you prefer? Editions, news flow. I, I, I think I prefer editions. If if you made me choose, um, part partially it's a it's a personal thing. So it's don't take that as the gospel. If you're listening to this from the standpoint of uh, I have a short attention span, and so that means that uh, anytime I'm presented with you know more information coming my way, I'm like I feel like I'm missing out. Like I need to finish up what I'm reading so that I can get to this next thing. Uh, so I really like if I'm going to read something and pay attention to it to kind of just have it as a standalone. Um, I do think it's interesting, um, and it kind of goes speaks to a point that I had a while back about how uh, I don't know that um, the future of news or media is uh, paid subscriptions for the most part. Uh, however, I do think that you can get uh, loyal readers to pay for things like skins or preferences. Um, we've seen that before with different technologies. Um, and so uh, while I may be a regular reader of, let's say, the Washington Post, and I may not want to subscribe if they want me to be 
you know, you know, a long-term subscriber, I may just go get my news elsewhere. Um, I may have a preference in how I read the news for the Washington Post. So as a loyal reader, I may choose to support that by getting something special, right? Like uh, becoming like a premium member that allows me to uh, access the site in a unique way in the way that I prefer it or something like that. Yeah, so thinking about like personalization almost. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was a new survey that shows that 70% of UK publishers in this survey are looking towards video content as their top priority going into 2019. Um, so I see you laughing over there. Some of the publications that were included in this survey were News UK, The Telegraph, Hearst UK, and BuzzFeed UK. Um, I also wanted to follow this up with a new study that comes from Cisco Visual Networking Index, um, which predicts that video will make up 82% of IP traffic by 2022. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? I kind of saw you smirking earlier. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think, you know, what's old is new again, and there was this whole pivot to video um, uh, I guess movement a couple years ago and it's because of you know really social video and really Facebook and uh, Facebook was touting all these video views for these what we would describe as social videos and so every publisher on the planet went out and fired large portions of their creative departments and hired all these video folks and then we find out that you know Facebook is gonna throttle the reach and then uh, on top of that, many of their video metrics were artificially inflated by a large degree. And so now everybody pivoted away from social video. And now uh, video is becoming attractive again. But uh, I think publishers are looking at it maybe a little bit differently now. How does it, you know, how does it augment existing things? And I think um, we're getting what, what publishers continually get wrong is they're worried more about the medium uh, and not as much about the message, if you will. And I think. It comes back to uh, Betsy Fast, actually, who is from Hearst, who I saw you mentioned on there. So um, some of these publishers may have a better plan uh, that I'm giving them credit for. But uh, Betsy had talked about how you know they had to pivot away from this kind of social video strategy. I wrote an article actually uh, this week on the Ezoic blog uh, that featured kind of the the discussion that Betsy had at the recent pub intelligence that we had and kind of my commentary on it. And um, I thought it was interesting. She talked about how that you know they really this kind of like experience with Facebook throttling the reach and you know the the downfall of social video really gave them the chance to figure out like where does video really fit in and you learn that like certain audiences really like video um, and others really don't like I'll give you a really good example of you know there's some shows on YouTube that I love I really like them as much as I like anything that's on network television I think they're really good um, that said, I watch them on my television at home. I have an app for YouTube on my television at home, and I'll put it up and I'll watch those shows there. It's the only time that I want to watch those types of videos or shows via YouTube. If you try to give me those shows in another format like Facebook or Instagram, like those are the social media I use on my phone. Oftentimes whenever I'm like, you know, waiting for something in line at the store. I'm not going to watch it. I can't have audio. You know, I'm not going to watch those types of long form shows. And so I think as a publisher, you have to say, well, who is my audience? And what is it that I'm providing them? What kind of content do they want? And is video the medium? If so, then yeah, give it to them. And if you don't know, then find out. You know, you can host the video natively on your own site, try different social platforms, all that kind of stuff. But I think 
one of the mistakes that I think you can make as a publisher, and brand publishers are the worst about this because you have people that have their jobs tied to it and they have to build strategies a year ahead of time. And in a lot of these cases, you build a strategy because somebody asked you for a plan, right? But the problem is, is like, you don't know if that plan is gonna work. And so you're gonna need to pivot off of that. And the problem with these large organizations a lot of times is, if you're my boss and you come to me and say, what's your plan for this year? And I say video, we're gonna get into video. And then two months in, the video strategy sucks, right? Like, how, how willing am I going to be to admit to you that my strategy and my plan sucked, right? Right, After, especially if you invest a lot of money or time into it and resources. Right, and the smart thing to do would, if you were a cool boss and really understood the way that publishing worked, you'd be like, hey, how's the video thing working? And I would say, it sucks, right? Our audience isn't responding. You say, great, let's pivot that team into something else, right? But that's not traditionally how it works um, for those of you that have, worked in any type of corporate setting, you know that's not how a lot of things work for the most part. And so um, I think that's why we're seeing um, in a lot of these cases these kind of large staple trends that everybody kind of follows along with. And then, you know, next year people make fun of it. And I don't think that's really fair necessarily either. Right. Actually, that was um, your blog post was one of the topics I wanted to touch on today. Are there any other, you know, content strategy um tips or methods that you can share with our publishers that will help drive 2019? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's 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 about being really data-driven, I think. So that's the takeaway that I had from a lot of things that uh, Betsy discussed. What I really liked, um, despite the fact that she's, you know, in charge of content for Hearst UK, which is all these different brands with reaches and audiences that probably most of the other listeners on this podcast probably don't have, right? So... You know, Seventeen Magazine has a really unique audience that's probably unique to it uh, and has incredible reach and probably more relevant on things like Snap than most other brands that are out there. That all said, you know, one of the things I really liked about her is that she did a lot of things and talked about a lot of uh, strategies, you know, the Game of Thrones on good housekeeping uh, videos and things like that. You know, what does Game of Thrones have to do with good housekeeping? And she's like, well, the people that read good housekeeping are also fans of Game of Thrones. And she knew that people would kind of balk at that, you know, like this, like you're not keeping up with the brand integrity, you know, uh, especially for uh, a brand like that. And so she basically just said, hey, listen, I'm going to fly in the face of what people think and I'm not going to care about opinions. I'm going to worry about data and about my audience. And I think as a publisher, you have to do that. So you think you probably know your audience, but unless you have the data, you really don't. So um, what articles on your site right now, what topics are getting the most uh, content viewed percentage? Uh, where is engagement time the longest? What landing pages generate the longest overall sessions? Meaning which which landing pages do people start on and then go and visit other pages or, or read forever? Like This is how you understand like engagement and what content is popular. And this is gonna be what allows you to kind of figure out like, do I wanna write more content like this content? Or draw a circle around it and say, okay, my content about this is the most popular. What do people that like this also like? And if it has nothing to do with the rest of your website or content or brand or whatever, um, don't be afraid to take a risk and be like, I'm gonna write something about something totally different because I think my audience will like it and I'm willing to take that risk. Because what's the worst that's gonna happen? That no one reads it, that you waste a little bit of time? It's a fair experiment. I mean, this is a publishing is built on the people that are accidentally successful in a lot of ways, right? 
And the best way to get accidentally successful is to experiment a lot. Yeah, and really kind of just getting out of our own comfort zones, it seems like. So you mentioned um, videos for 2019. One thing that we've talked about in the past is podcasts. And I've been looking in the headlines in the past few weeks. I feel like I keep seeing more and more podcasts popping up. Um, so I wanted to kind of touch on a couple that have most recently popped up. So Brit and Co. and the Washington Post are both launching new podcasts. Um, so Brit and Co. has launched a new podcast that's focused around positive female images. And each episode will feature an interview with a female changemaker. And the Washington Post is ambitiously launching a daily podcast starting next month. And that'll just be a short 20-minute episode published each day at 5 p.m. And each episode will feature three different segments. But I thought that was actually really cool. Burton Co. obviously knows their audience um, and kind of catering towards that. And the Washington Post, too, they know that their readers are going to be commuting around 5 p.m. each day and they're going to need something to listen to. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I really like podcast. I mean, we're doing a podcast right now. So everybody that's listening to this, obviously a podcast listener as well. So um, there's a really good chance that if you thought that a podcast would work well for whatever publishing entity you have, that you're, you've either tried it or trying it now. And so I think the real question becomes, uh, what value can you provide your your current audience through audio that you can't provide them through anything else? And I think what when you do something that's audio, you have something that's a little bit longer form, a little bit more um, less formal. So uh, what's the difference between this and a blog that I can potentially write? Well, this is much faster, right? It's gonna take me much longer to write a blog and you have an, uh, a way to better understand my thoughts uh, kind of in context. Uh, a blog, I'm kind of formally putting things together and trying to find the most succinct way I can show you images and charts and graphs. But this is really a way that you can get my opinion. You can get um, kind of my thoughts and, and we can kind of shoot maybe to the heart of a matter a little bit easier. And I think that that style of format lends itself really well um, when done properly. And I think sometimes you have to have characters. And so for, if you're a publisher and you're looking at this and you're going, I really don't know who I would feature on a podcast. I don't maybe like to record myself. Think about your writers or think about other people in the space that you could bring in that could potentially be a character, right? So. Um, you know, I go to events and do magic and, and do all these kinds of things. And partially it's because I realized that like live formats, spoken word, audio, video, these types of things, you, it's, it's less about, pre, it's, it's as much about an experience as it is about, um, presenting information, Writ, written material, traditional publishing. When you see something, um, in a visual format, you have the ability to tell a story and show something to people that um, that can use their imagination, they can read words on a page, they can see information. Um, but when you present it in audio or video format, um, you're giving it to them differently and you're almost selling it to them, right? Selling them information. And so if you want a successful podcast or a successful video strategy, go back to something earlier, I think one of the things you have to really think about is how engaging am I or the characters that I am presenting them um, because I think that that really is, is the key. And I think if you look at a lot of the popular podcasts that are out there uh, right now, the ones that have really grown a lot in the last couple of years, their hosts or people that are involved, are, they're unique, right? You could kind of pick, you could pick their voice out or you could kind of pick them out of a lineup because they're, they seem different from everybody else. And I think that that's why people want to listen. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have a couple 
um, special guests on our own podcasts in the coming weeks. So definitely stay tuned for that. Yeah, we've got a couple guests lined up. Um, I know it's not something we've done a lot of here recently, but uh, between data scientists and really, really popular publishers, we've got some cool stuff coming up. Yes. So the last thing I have on deck is some new stats from a study um, about media moments in 2018. Um, so it was a long list, but I picked five that I think our publishers should know. And I figured we can go through the list and you can share your thoughts or comments on um, each stat. So the first one is that retaining readers is four to five times cheaper than acquiring new ones. Agree? Um, I would have to see the data. I would say that generally that holds true when it comes to customers a lot of times when you talk about like re like um, uh, returning customers or subscription customers, it's generally easier to uh, retain than it is to acquire new. So For digital publishers, do you think it's more important for them to focus on retaining or focus on getting new ones? Depends on your strategy, right? So if 90% of your traffic comes from search and uh, they're all new, then no, um, continue to focus on your search strategy, you know. But if a large portion of your traffic right now is direct, let's say 15 to 20%, I'd say, hey, there might be an opportunity to grow that. 15 to 20% is, is actually a good chunk of your audience. And um, imagine if you could get 40%, how great would that be? So, um, yeah, I would just say generally, I, I would always be looking to find ways to retain an audience. Um, and your strategy is really going to depend on your traffic sources, I think. Right. So this one is not so surprising. 44% of 18 to 21 year olds have deleted the Facebook app in the US. Really not surprising at this point. No. And I, I mean, it's a trend I think even Facebook is aware of. And that's the fact that, you know, younger generations aren't finding Facebook to be the same kind of platform that um, some of the older generations are. And that doesn't mean Facebook is far from dead. Uh, it's funny, I was watching Shark Tank the other day and it seemed every consumer product on Shark Tank, like their their go-to-market strategy is like, we advertise on Facebook, right? And so it's like, this this still is a platform that, I mean, I hear brands talk about all the time, but advertisers jump so much money into it because of the, the audiences, at least the audiences that buy stuff are still there right now. Um, but they've been smart in a lot of their acquisitions. They own Instagram. Um, if something else starts to take off, I'm sure Facebook will um, look for more acquisitions and things like that. But Facebook is really like multiple conversations, right? There's the platform, there's the business, there's all these other kinds of things. So um, not surprising to hear, but uh, I don't think it's necessarily a nail in the coffin of Facebook, the platform. Um, the next one kind of took me a little bit by surprise, but apparently one in five people now ignored the news completely. <laughs> so... I don't really know how that affects digital publishers. <laughs> I I mean, it, it may or may not. I mean, you, you have to consider, you know, like if you do write about the news or something that's topical, like, you know, to Bill Slosky's point about search a while back uh, that he talked about was basically like what makes your content unique? Like, how are you not just being me too uh, about like, you know, whatever the topical subject you're posting about. But I would say, and maybe this is just the American political environment but it is really hard to follow like a lot of times i figure out what's going on in the news by what type of satire about a particular subject is being posted about on twitter or another social platform 
And uh, I can say it's not the best way to get the news to figure out how are what are people making fun of. Okay, I can kind of deduce from this exactly my what be what 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 might be happening in the news. I kind of do the same thing. If SNL is going to do a parody on it, <laughs> then I'll listen. <laughs> Yeah, and you can kind of figure, like, even the satire, you know, like, the slant, like, SNL, right? A little bit more left-leaning leaning here in the in the Americas. And so you can kind of, like, deduce by their satire, like, maybe where something lies. And I think that that's kind of, you know, um, it, it may just be uh, our perception, and I'm sure people have felt this way before. But because there is so much content out there now... Um, and the way that I talked about it being the best time ever for digital publishers at the very beginning of this podcast, you know, you do the, – the challenge now is really to stand out and to find your audience. And I think that, you know, to the point about the news, the news is broad, right? Who is who's the – if we were to say who is the target audience for the news, it's everybody, right? So that is not a very segmented audience. And so I would say when you start going after something that broad, the competition is steep and it's hard to stand out. But when you start segmenting and thinking about, like, who is my audience really, then you can probably figure out different ways to stand out. That's a really good perspective. Um, The next one is that publishers target an average of six alternative revenue options. Six kind of sounds like a lot. Six sounds like a lot. I think for some publishers, six makes sense. Uh, You're probably going to have a couple, a primary and then, like, a secondary. And then everything else is, like... You know, like walking around money, if you will. You know? <laughs> walking around money. You know, I saw it today. Uh, one of my favorite shows, Hot Ones, which I've talked about many times on this show. Uh, it was featured in Digiday, and it's because they get 85% of their revenue from hot sauce sales, which I'm a part of. I've bought over $100 of the hot sauce through Heatonist, which is like their brand that they work with. And, um, you know, every publisher is going to have this unique mix. I think uh, programmatic revenue is going to continue to be number one for most. Uh, but you are going to have these unique opportunities, as we've talked about with affiliate ads and things like that before, where your niche, your audience may have one particular thing or advertiser or relationship or something that you can kind of hook onto that may be able to be another revenue driver for you. So six seems like a lot. Um, I'm, I have no doubt that every publisher you probably find six different ways to make money from their property, but you're probably only going to have one or two uh, primary and secondary sources of revenue. What actually sounds like a lot is $100 worth of hot sauce. That must have been like 20 bottles of hot sauce. Well, I like to try all the new ones, and then I place big orders because who wants to buy just one bottle of hot sauce, you know? And then it's over the course of a year. If I had to add it up, it's probably over $200 worth of hot sauce. Wow, that's amazing. They're good hot sauces. (laughs) Apparently so. No wonder they get 85% of their revenue from it. Um, The last stat I have is more than 1,000 U.S. news sites are still unavailable in Europe. Yeah, it doesn't. I don't think that's going to change just based on the fact that you hear a lot of political figures and uh, activists, if you will, inside of the the GDPR community in Europe saying like they, they hope somebody gets basically like caught I, I don't caught's not the right we need word. a scapegoat yeah they, what we're they saying. want somebody to get burned they want to burn somebody at the stake for gdpr so if you're an american business you're like no thank you we've been we've not stuck her uh foot out for this foot out for this i don't know i was gonna say t- dipped our toe in the water i think but it's neck really, out right yeah stick your neck out yeah so we're not we haven't done it yet uh, i don't think we're gonna do it now so uh i would I mean, the Los Angeles Times is a really good example of somebody that's sat it out. I don't imagine that they're going to – there's too many people inside of that organization willing to go to bat and 
put millions of dollars on the line just so they can have, you know, 3% of their traffic back. Well, that's all I have for today. Well, awesome. Well, we want to thank you for being a loyal audience. The podcast continues to grow. The reviews that you've written us on iTunes are always super, super helpful. We hope that you're checking out our uh, weekly video series now inside the Publisher Lab. We kind of dive deeper into different topics that we discuss here on this show uh, on Inside the Publisher Lab. And so if you listen to this podcast, I really encourage you to check it out. Um, I think that's it, Shelby. I think that's all. All right, thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time on The Publisher Lab.